This is Unstructured. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Unstructured. This one is going to be another addendum episode. This time I'm flying solo. I put out a Q&A request to the Facebook group, the Unstructured Facebook group, and got some questions from everybody. I want to keep the spirit of the addendum episodes going. Essentially, the idea of addendums are, I start a conversation here, and we all continue in the Facebook group. I'd really like everyone to come check it out. It's off of the Facebook page. It's pinned to the top. You can find it under facebook.com slash unstructured P as in podcast. There's a pinned post right there. It'll take you in the group. And I'm going to start off asking the questions or trying to answer the questions that are given to me. And the first one comes from Luke Kaler. He asks, why have you done this? And he also included a video in the show notes that involved punching me in the face. Now, why have I done this? Honestly, I've wanted to start a podcast now for many years. I've been a fan of podcasts for well over 10 years, maybe 12. I I don't even remember. Um, I listened to podcasts originally on the iPod, back why they were called podcasts. And I'm really a shy person. So I guess my secret motivation is I want to be able to meet people and just talk to some really cool people. And my shy nature means that I don't feel really comfortable walking up to somebody in public unless I have a reason or a purpose. So back in the 90s when I was in a band for six months or so, I was really engaging. I was able to talk to people because I had a purpose to be at the bar. I was playing in the band and I was trying to promote that. Well, now... I'm kind of leveraging the podcast as a a method to meet new people and and hopefully have a great conversation that other people may enjoy as well. So I guess that's really the reason I'm doing it is just to satisfy my own urge to talk to people. The second question is from Greg Garvin. Forewarning to everyone, Greg Garvin was on a tear. So he's about 50% of all the questions. And this question is, is national U.S. politics something worth paying attention to, having arguments over? Does voting a national matter, in your opinion? That's a hard one. I really think that voting does matter wherever you are. So at least you can say, hey, I committed to this particular judgment. However, I do think we focus a lot of our attention on national politics and neglect what really is important. How many, how many people in the audience voted for their local election? Because let's be honest, where your children is, are going to school and who's running the district and who is in the city council and determines your property taxes and and law enforcement and things around you. I, I would argue that that affects your life directly. But, at least here in the United States, we're worried about what the president is doing and what Congress is doing. Probably not much and probably not good. But while we're worried about them, we don't vote about who's local. I mean, 
what counts? What they're doing in Washington or the capital of wherever you are? Or what's happening in your own community? I'd argue the latter. So I do think it, it counts to vote national politics a little, but it counts to vote locally a whole lot. Now, Greg also asks, who made Floyd, Roger Waters or David Gilmore? Why? Obviously, this is a deep philosophical question that I can go into on. Um, by Floyd, he means Pink Floyd, I am quite certain. And truthfully, Pink Floyd at inception was Roger Waters, Sid Barrett, Nick Mason, and Rick Wright. David Gilmore came in as Sid Barrett was losing control of him, of his mind, ultimately, and filled in to where they finally just stopped picking up Sid. I would argue that that would be Pink Floyd 2.0, and they discovered themselves and culminated in some fantastic albums, namely, obviously, Dark Side of the Moon, um, Wish You Were Here, the Overlooked Animals, which may be my favorite Pink Floyd album, and The Wall. So who made Pink Floyd? Roger Waters and David Gilmore. Now, I kind of lean a little towards Roger Waters simply by the fact that if I look at post-Pink Floyd, I would take pros and cons of hitchhiking over the, quote, Floyd albums that were made with David Gilmore in the 80s. I really could not stand them. Now, Roger Waters politically can be a pugnacious fellow and kind of annoying, but he really has an amazing talent. And I think that that edge of bitterness that he injects adds a friction with the um, musical soaring of David Gilmore and that tension between them really makes the band. So as far as I'm concerned, Pink Floyd ended, I'm not even going to say with the final cut. I'd almost say before the final cut. The final cut has some moments, but honestly, it, it's not that great. Next question is from Dustin Cubitt, who also was a guest on the podcast. You definitely need to check that out. He wrote, are you pound woke AF? Now, this is, of course, Dustin, who's nicknamed the woke centrist, and he's very concerned about hashtag woke, or I'm old, so I consider it a pound sign. As a matter of fact, that does lead to some awkwardness if you consider, what, what would it be pound me too? I don't know. Am I woke? Uh, not really. I'm probably napping. Um, next question is from Chris Reed. Chris Reed is out of New Zealand. He's our resident Kiwi and I have a lot of fun with Chris. Chris is challenging me politically here saying, how do you think you would think politically if you grew up in a different country? Well, I think that I would probably respond to the environment that I was in. I know that sounds like a cop-out, but I'll, I'll give examples because 
I'm in one country right now, and the way I feel politically can change depending on where I am. Where I grew up was in the middle of the desert with 10 acres, and all neighbors had 10-acre plots or larger, so there was a lot of elbow room around me. Now, with this room, I, I want as little government as humanly possible because they can't get out there, and really anything they do is going to interfere with what I do. Now, I live in downtown Hampton, and there is a street right in front of my house. People go faster than the speed limit on that street, and I find that scary, and I feel threatened. So, I'd like a little more government there. I'd like a little bit more police intervention. I'd like them to stop that traffic. So, am I a hypocrite? Eh, probably. But I would say that the more people that are around me in a near area, the more I'm open to stricter forms of government or more government, you know, noise ordinances, uh, things of that sort start to make, you know, a lot more sense because we're all packed together. So we have to cooperate with each other and, and maybe there needs to be a, a bigger hand in cooperation. On the flip side, if I'm out in the middle of nowhere, well, why are you interfering in my business? I'm out here. It's spacious. I'm caring for my own thing. You don't understand where I am. We're distant from each other. So leave me alone. I would apply that rule for both uh, locality and country. Greg Garvin asks, have you ever traveled to a place that felt more like home than your home? If so, where and why? Huh. Well, um, I would say, I don't know. It, that's a hard one. I, I've never traveled somewhere specifically where I felt like it was better, except maybe where I am now. Um, I grew up on the desert again, and the things we lacked there were rain, for one. Um, it was hot as can be. And for some crazy reason, I really wanted to have a, a two-story house. I, I grew up on a, a one-story ranch, and I thought that a two-story house was really sophisticated. And last of all, I, I wanted to be somewhere where things were happening, and there's a downtown. And so therefore, downtown Hampton, where I am, well, I'm on the waterfront every six hours, this title. It's, it's budget waterfront. And it's a two-story house. It's Victorian. That's a bonus. I, I think that's really cool for me. And I'm within walking distance of all kinds of things, including every year a parade goes in front of my house. And I like the fact that the city um, throws a parade for me every year. Now, they might have been doing it for about 20 or 30 years before I arrived, but I'd like to think that they are, in fact, doing it for me. I'm kind of special that way. So I would say that downtown Hampton... And the house I'm sitting in right now is more like home than my home, only it became my home. So that's a strange loop. Now, the next half of this question is, if money was no object, what would you do to fill your time? Wow. Um, I would run a lot more. I would do more podcasting. I would travel I, I feel like I haven't been able to travel a lot. I, I would definitely travel. And 
honestly, I get interested in things and obsessed with things. So I would dump a ton of money on a bunch of stuff. And my wife would want to kill me because the even bigger accumulation of piles throughout the house of equipment that I get and then lose interest in later. Now, the next question, Drew Glebe, and please, I hope I'm saying that right, asks, I've noticed that when you touch on current events slash political topics, you focus on how they affect your guest emotionally slash psychologically more than intellectually. Is this something you do consciously in order to better get to know the person you're talking about, or is this the lens in which you personally view the world? Um... That's an awesome question, and I'm not completely sure. Um, I'm evolving um, politically and everything else. I, I really am trying to learn from the people around me. And with a podcast, I, I can tell you my intent. And my intent is to showcase whomever I am interviewing. And, and by doing that, it's to showcase them. It's, it's not to showcase me and whatever I feel about something, it doesn't necessarily matter. It really is about how the guest feels. Now I may, I may push against it or I may ask something um, only to try to learn more and, and maybe to test a, a view of mine. I don't know, but I feel that intellectually, eh, okay, well, what do you think? Okay. That's good. Well, that doesn't, why do you think that? Why does it matter? I mean, who, who cares in a way how, how you feel intellectually? What impact is it on your life that you take this course of action or you have this particular view? So I don't know. I, I instinctively, I think, am going for the emotional aspect. It, it's not necessarily conscious, I maybe just am accidentally doing that. I, I hope it is a good thing and everyone enjoys it. But that's really my goal is to just showcase the guest and and really get to know cool people. And that doesn't involve me injecting my own feelings and bits or anything like that. Now, Greg Garvin is back and he asks, if you could have a conversation with your 20-year-old self... Would there be any areas of strong disagreement? If so, what about? Well, I'd cover a couple periods. Um, at 20 years old, I would hate myself because I knew everything. Oh my God, I knew everything. Yeah, there's nobody more smug than a 20-year-old. Or an 18-year-old. I mean, let's be fair. My father always said, and it's an old joke, but sometimes old jokes have meaning. Hey, make sure you hire them while they're a teenager because they still know it all. Well, I had that down big time. I knew everything. And now I realize that uh, <laughs> I know very little. And hanging around the Facebook groups um, that I'm in... Uh, that's proven to me every day very clearly when I have to read posts and comments multiple times just to say, okay, oh, I think I know what they're saying. And then reading something and being triggered, I guess, or, or just feeling emotionally irritated by the comment. 
having to step back and say, you know what, let me just stop and answer that later. And then sometimes I go, well, why did you get upset? And I, I learn from that. So for my 20 year old self, good luck, kid. <laughs> You've got a lot coming to you. Now, if I go a couple of years into the future, 22 to 26, I bring this up because those were very um, hard years for me. I, um, I was so angry, so bitter and upset at the world. And I would have a disagreement with myself there saying, get over it. Get over it, you stupid, needy little twit. You really have seen nothing. You have no problems. These things feel like problems. They seem like problems, but they're nothing. And I discovered that firsthand a couple years later when I got to meet Cuban refugees and realized everything they went through and exactly what problems are. Okay, I'll be fair. I still have to remind myself sometimes today. I get irritated on little things. I mean, my screen might lock up on my smartphone. That's devastating. All right, the last question is from Greg Garvin again, telling you he was on a tear. And this one's a long one. He asks, where do you fit on the technology optimist slash technology pessimist syndrome spectrum? Sorry. For example, do you think technology will enable a symbiotic relationship with humans and our host planet? Or do you think we are destined for a collapse and are more likely to be driving teams of horses than driving flying electric cars on renewable en energy? Also, what do you think about peak oil theory and diminishing returns on fossil fuels and other natural resources? Well, folks, in the spirit of that one, I'm going to pull the ultimate cop out. Let's discuss that in the group. Please come by. Please check it out. You could search for it on Facebook as Unstructured, but the best way to go is go to Unstructured P. While you're there, like the page. Hit the pin post. Join the group. And let's talk about Greg Garvin's question. Again, thanks so much for listening. And can't wait to talk to you next. Thank you. My heart yearns to people.